Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Scientists have come to realize that in the soil and rocks beneath our feet, there lies a vast biosphere with a global volume nearly twice that of all the world's oceans. We don't know much about these underground organisms, but they represent most of the planet's microbial mass, and their diversity may exceed that of surface-dwelling life forms. But they come with a puzzle. That's next. Quanta Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. The existence of Earth's microbes comes with a great puzzle. Researchers have often assumed that many subterranean realms are oxygen-deficient dead zones inhabited only by primitive microbes that keep their metabolisms at a crawl and scrape by on traces of nutrients. It was thought as those resources get depleted, the underground environment must become lifeless with greater depth. In new research published this summer in Nature Communications, researchers presented evidence that challenges those assumptions. In groundwater reservoirs 200 meters below the fossil fuel fields of Alberta, Canada, they discovered abundant microbes that produce unexpectedly large amounts of oxygen even in the absence of light. Researchers call it dark oxygen. Karen Lloyd is a subsurface microbiologist at the University of Tennessee who wasn't part of the study. This is one of the biggest biomes on the planet, and we really don't know anything about it. I mean, this is like an amazing thing to not know about one of the biggest ecosystems <laughs> on the planet. We kind of have egg on our face, right? Like this would be like saying, we just discovered that a lot of photosynthesis happens in the Amazon. We know <laughs> that, but the level of our ignorance is at that level about the subsurface. The quantity of the gas diffusing out of the cells is so great that it seems to create conditions favorable for oxygen-dependent life in the surrounding groundwater and strata. Here's Barbara Sherwood Lawler, a geochemist at the University of Toronto who wasn't involved in the work. It's a landmark paper. I think we will be citing it in the literature for years and years to come. Past research has often looked at mechanisms that could produce hydrogen and some other vital molecules for underground life. But the generation of oxygen-containing molecules has been largely overlooked because such molecules are so rapidly consumed in the subsurface environment. Here's Lawler again. Hints? Of all of this were there, tantalizing hints of the role of oxygen, but I can honestly say nobody's pulled it all together in quite the way that this paper has. They have taken that challenge. They have taken those hints that were out there in the literature and from other places globally, and they have pulled it all together to really demonstrate that the importance of us looking at the aerobic metabolisms, that this is a real and important challenge. The new study looked at deep aquifers in the Canadian province of Alberta, which has such rich deposits of underground tar, oil sands, and hydrocarbon that it's been dubbed the Texas of Canada. Because its huge cattle farming and agriculture industries rely heavily on groundwater, the provincial government actively monitors the water's acidity and chemical composition. 
The idea for the study emerged when Emil Ruff was starting his postdoctoral fellowship in microbiology at the University of Calgary in 2015. He found out about the records of underground Alberta. They have this, I would want to say, unique data set of hundreds of groundwater monitoring wells and sometimes years to decades of chemical data. So the minerals and gas data and isotope data, all this beautiful data, but nobody had ever systematically looked at the microbiology. And so this looked like or seemed like low-hanging fruit. Like, I have all this beautiful data, this physical, chemical, environmental data, and now I can look into the microbial communities. And the idea was to sequence the genes of these communities to find just how diverse are they and what is the composition? Little did Ruff know that this seemingly straightforward study would tax him for the next six years. The more we looked, the more things we found that seemed weird. And in the end, we think we, we nailed it now. But it took a long time and a lot of collaboration. It began with collecting groundwater from 95 wells across Alberta. Ruff and his co-workers then started doing basic microscopy. They stained microbial cells in groundwater samples, with a nucleic acid dye and used a fluorescent microscope to count them. By radiodating the organic matter in the samples and checking the depths at which they had been collected, the researchers were able to identify the ages of the groundwater aquifers they were tapping. A pattern in the numbers puzzled them. Usually, in surveys of the sediment under the seafloor, scientists find that the number of microbial cells decreases with depth, older, deeper samples can't sustain as much life because they're more cut off from the nutrients made by photosynthetic plants and algae near the surface. But to the surprise of Ruff's team, the older, deeper groundwaters held more cells than the fresher waters did. The researchers then started identifying the microbes in the samples, using molecular tools to spot their telltale marker genes. A lot of them were methanogenic archaea, those are simple, single-celled microbes that produce methane after consuming hydrogen and carbon oozing out of rocks or in decaying organic matter. The researchers also found many bacteria that feed on the methane or on minerals in the water. But what didn't make sense was that many of the bacteria were aerobes, microbes that require oxygen to digest methane and other compounds. How could aerobes thrive in groundwaters that should have no oxygen since photosynthesis is impossible? The team discovered through chemical analyses that there was a lot of dissolved oxygen in the 200-meter-deep groundwater samples, too. It was unheard of. Ruff says they were kind of stunned. Well, the first impression was that <laughs> we, <laughs> we screwed up. Really, it was because you don't normally think about big, big discoveries or something. The first thing you do is you question everything and you go back and you start again and you're like, did we contaminate everything? And then we did a lot of additional analysis to convince ourselves that we didn't contaminate. So Ruff first tried to show that the dissolved oxygen in the samples was the result of mishandling. It's like Sherlock Holmes. There's lots of lines of indications. There's not like 100% bulletproof evidence yet. So Ruff kept going. The dissolved oxygen content seemed consistent across hundreds of samples. Mishandling couldn't explain it. If the dissolved oxygen didn't come from contamination, 
Where did it come from? Ruff realized that he was on the brink of something big, even though making controversial claims ran against his nature. Many of his co-authors had doubts, too. The finding threatened to shatter the foundation of our understanding of subsurface ecosystems. In theory, the dissolved oxygen in the groundwater could have originated in plants, microbes, or from geological processes. To find the answer, the researchers turned to mass spectrometry, a technique that can measure the mass of atomic isotopes. Typically, oxygen atoms from geological sources are heavier than oxygen from biological sources. The oxygen in the groundwater was light, which implied that it must have come from a living entity. The most plausible candidates were microbes. The researchers sequenced the genomes of the entire community of microbes in the groundwater and tracked down the biochemical pathways and reactions most likely to produce oxygen. The answers kept pointing back to a discovery made over a decade ago by Mark Strauss of the University of Calgary. He's the senior author of the new study and the head of the laboratory where Ruff was working. While working in a lab in the Netherlands in the late 2000s, Strauss noticed that a type of methane-feeding bacteria often found in lake sediments and wastewater sludges had a strange way of life. Instead of taking in oxygen from its surroundings like other aerobes, the bacteria created its own oxygen by using enzymes to break down the soluble compounds called nitrites. Nitrites contain a chemical group made of nitrogen and two oxygen atoms. The bacteria used the self-generated oxygen to split methane for energy. When microbes break down compounds this way, it's called dismutation. Until now, it was thought to be rare in nature as a method for generating oxygen. But recent laboratory experiments involving artificial microbe communities revealed that the oxygen produced by dismutation can leak out of the cells and into the surrounding medium to the benefit of other oxygen-dependent organisms in a kind of symbiotic process. Ruff thinks that this could be what's enabling entire communities of aerobic microbes to thrive in the groundwater and potentially in the surrounding soils as well. The finding fills a crucial gap in our understanding of how the huge subterranean biosphere has evolved and how dismutation contributes to the cycle of compounds moving through the global environment. Ruff is now an assistant scientist at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. He says the mere possibility that oxygen is present in groundwater changes everything. We really have no idea how this huge biosphere, this hidden biosphere, evolved, how it works, and also the contribution to global cycles. And if we show that oxygen plays a role there, it really changes the energetics, the bioenergetics of this. It changes how productive we think these ecosystems are because they can be much more productive than we had thought because we just assumed they were anoxic, devoid of oxygen. It really changes our understanding of the past, the present, and the future of the subsurface of Earth. Or in the words of geochemist Barbara Sherwood Lawler, Understanding what lives in the subsurface of our planet is also really important for us translating that knowledge to understanding elsewhere. For instance, Lawler points to Mars as a good example. 
we pretty much understand the surface of Mars right now is a cold, dry desert. If we want to understand the potential for life in the past and potentially any remaining life, then we're very interested in the subsurface of Mars. The soil of Mars, for instance, contains perchlorate compounds that some Earth microbes can turn into chloride and oxygen. Jupiter's moon Europa has a deep frozen ocean. Sunlight may not penetrate it, but oxygen could potentially be produced there by microbial dismutation instead of photosynthesis. Or the subsurface of Enceladus to explain those plumes that were in the news recently. Meaning observed plumes of water vapor shooting from the surface on one of the moons of Saturn. The plumes carry abiotic organic molecules and could originate from a subsurface ocean of liquid water. If we someday find life on other worlds like those, it could be using dismutation pathways to survive. Arlene Santana helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Sogot Bolaki's full article, Underground Cells Make Dark Oxygen Without Light, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Just a quick note, Emil Ruff has been awarded Early Career Investigator funding by the Simons Foundation, which also supports Quanta as an editorially independent science news magazine. Funding decisions do not affect editorial coverage. Make sure to tell your friends about the Quanta Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast.